Futurize goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Undheim, futurist and author. In episode 31 of the podcast, the topic is the future of commoditized robotics. Our guest is Tom Ryden, executive director of Mass Robotics, the biggest co-working space and robotics community in the U.S. In this conversation, we talk about what's happened over the past decade. Where is the robotics field now? From R&D to standardization to big company implementation to startups to consumer applications. Changing form factors, the pivotal role of AI and IoT towards a Cambrian explosion in robotics. What are the hottest startups and where are we going in the next decade? Quick word from our sponsor. Do you have business challenges where you would like high-quality external input from experts? Yegi is an insight network with access to on-demand teams made up of select talent from thousands of experts across industries and markets. Check out Yegi at archives.yegi.com. That's Y-E-G-I-I. Tom, how are you doing today? Fonda, I'm doing great. Uh, it's a wonderful summer day, and uh, it's uh, it's great to be here and uh, and chat a little bit about robotics. Yeah, I like that. Tom, you are the executive director of Mass Robotics, but prior, you have been involved in a bunch of other robotics ventures. Yeah. I know you have background from iRobot. Um, you serve on various kind of boards on uh, uh, various universities, and you have been in, in, involved in robotics for for a good while now. Um, you're an electrical engineer, I think, from University of Vermont by by background. Tell me, you know, with that illustrious sort of experience in in robotics and engineering, what would you say was the one experience that has been the most important to you in sort of shaping your, your outlook uh, on robotics and on, and on life? So um, I have always been excited to be involved in startups and in young companies. Um, and robotics has been a, a passion uh, for a number of years. I was lucky enough to join iRobot when they were uh, a small company, a couple of folks over a, a donut shop in uh, just uh, outside of MIT um, and watch it grow. And I think the thing that's uh, really uh, kind of helped drive me in, in my uh, understanding of the success of robotics is really um, the work with the end user. And this is one of the things that I don't see enough startups doing is really spending the time with the users of their technology and really getting in-depth into um, how they're going to use it, why they're going to use it, the benefit they see coming out of uh, implementing robotics and whatever they're doing. Um, and so I think my experience in some of the companies I've been through is, is really that that's the biggest takeaway is, is really focus on the end user, the customer early on, understand in more depth than you can possibly imagine uh, exactly why they want this particular thing that you're going to develop. So I'm intrigued by that observation, Tom. Would you say that Rather than what people assume, which is, you know, the hardware just wasn't good enough in many of these previous and somewhat famous robotic failures and, you know, slow adoption rates and all kinds of like uh, robotic winters that we've had before, was the failure not so much in the technology, but but really in kind of projecting the, the user and the, the use case? Would you say that that is actually also involved uh, here? I think it's a combination. 
I think early on, uh, the robots were not robust enough uh, in some senses. So there was some hardware issues, but a lot of times it was not understanding how the customer is really going to implement the, the, the robot. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll give an example. I was recently at a, a manufacturer who was looking to automate a line. And um, we were sitting there watching the, uh, the people who were doing the work currently. And, and uh, I noticed that every 20 or 30 parts, the, the person would do something very quickly and I missed it, but I saw they were doing something. And, I, and so I said, hey, can we stop and, and ask them, what are they doing? And I said, oh, every so often a piece comes off and they have to do a little deburring. And so they just take it and just do a quick thing. Well, there's no robot that's going to do that. There's no robot that can, in the middle, do this quick analysis and understand that that one part needed a little bit of something special to make it work for the rest of the process um, in a way that could keep up with the process. And so there are so many things that humans do that sometimes people don't understand enough of, of that process to really implement automation in the way or robotics in the way it should be. So, so a, a bigger barrier to automation really is to re, either realize that the process can't be re-engineered, or 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 to re-engineer the process and and turn it into a more robot-friendly environment. Right. Or and one of the things, uh, the trends that we're seeing is this idea around collaborative robots, where a robot can do part of the automation, but the human is still there in the in the process and can add a certain attribute that, that humans can do really well, whether it's fine manipulation, dexterity, or, or, or kind of understanding uh, process changes and flows. Um, so this combination of robots and humans um, in the same environment, I think is a great uh, example of, of ways that we can uh, explore and expand the use of robotics. So we'll talk more about these different form factors and types of robots. But before that, I just I wanted to note that you told me you rang the opening bell for Nasdaq with a robot. When when was that? <laughs> uh, so that was uh, when iRobot went public, uh, two thousand seven, I believe. Um, so that was a fun experience uh, or something a little different. Uh, so Nasdaq uh, yeah. doesn't have a traditional bell; um, they have more of an electronic setup. But they have a button that starts the. Um, the exchange. Um, and yeah. as part of it, we, we uh, took one of the robots that iRobot had developed at the time, which was a uh, bomb disposal robot with an arm. Um, and we used that to drive up and essentially push the button and start the exchange. Well, incidentally, I think you lucked out, right? Because I was going to ask you, how do you ring a bell with a robot? <laughs> it would seem to me that the hand, the dexterity of a uh, robotic arm it's not exactly the use case. You have trained a robotic arm to do this very human shake exactly. motion. Exactly. Yeah, that would have been that would have been very difficult to do. So this was easy. It was a pushing of a button. Yeah. And I'll, I'll tell you All right, a so, funny little story behind that. Yeah. So of course, this yeah. is back to my earlier comment of of how robust are robots and systems. Um, we get there and and uh, we're doing the setup and we do a trial run and everything works works smoothly. And I said, you know, though. Sometimes these robots are not going to, to perform as you expect. The, the bell opens at the exact same time, you know, and, and, and uh, he takes me aside and he goes, I don't worry about it. And he shows me this back room where they have a second button, essentially, um, because you never know. They do these guests to come and start the exchange. And he goes, yeah, we can't rely on that in case somebody messes up. So I mean, you know, it. there's like champagne bottles <laughs> and all kinds of stuff in the way, right? Yeah. Um, 
All right. So tell me a little bit. Uh, let's let's get to this topic. How really? How can you chart the path of robotics for us, just in very broad strokes? How has the notion of robotics evolved in in your mind? What are kind of the main uh, points that it hit in its evolution? What and what are some of the main distinctions that are still valid today? You mentioned one a little earlier between cobots and non-cobots. There are so many form factors, and yeah. people will sometimes draw the history back to something that I, I wouldn't consider really a robot at all. And, uh, and and there's you know there's obviously a lot of robots from sci-fi and and other things that they they clearly weren't even robots they were they were just um, film toys and and things but they have nevertheless perhaps a, a place in robotic history give us a sense of of robotics and famous robots that actually matter to the development of commercial robotics. So let's focus on commercial robots. And I think that's an important thing. I think uh, there has been obviously development and research in robot systems and platforms for a number of years. Um, and yep. you know that when they're doing the research, they're kind of looking at different ways that robots can do all sorts of things. I think when uh, the really the evolution started in the commercialization of these products is when they started to focus on one particular task and did a purpose-built robot. So if you look at a Roomba, which is a robot's vacuuming uh, system, yep, it doesn't look like you would expect a robot to look like. People were trained, yep. when, this is what I think a robot's going to look like. It's going to look more humanoid. It's going to have all these capabilities. It was a very dedicated, targeted, we're going to clean a floor, we're going to clean a residential floor, um, and the robot will do that one task. And I think when people started right. to focus on single task, very dedicated, very focused, um, the robot started to become much more successful. And that's both in the home and in the commercial setting. So if we look at industrial automation, robotic arms have been around for a long, long time. But if we look at some of the other areas that have really exploded recently, warehouse automation being a great example, it's when people purpose built a robot to do a singular task around moving goods in a warehouse, not trying to automate everything. They're not automating the picking. Um, they're not automating uh, some of the other tasks, the packaging tasks. They were just saying, look, how do we move goods from one section of a warehouse to another section? maybe from a shelf to a picker, a packer. Can we do just that? Um, and when yeah. they focused on that and just did purpose-built robots like that, they started to see a real return on ROI and that it's exploded in that particular area. You know, it's so interesting you say this because it sort of flies in the face of what most people think about when they think about robots. And that's why I, I, I think I asked the question because sci-fi makes you think that robot has a well first off a human form factor right. or that you're aiming for a human form factor which is a whole other discussion right whether that's needed or not and, you know maybe we'll get to that but but like you said when, when you have a single purpose automatic function so so the extension the extreme extension of that is the current term rpa robot process automation. automation. What do you think of that? Is, is, is that even within the specter of what you guys so, focus on? Or would you consider that such a fringe software appropriation of the term that you don't even... We, we think it's a software, as you said, a software appropriation of the term. Uh, so RPA yeah. is really, we, we are focused on physical hardware um, and software. Yeah. So can I do something to change the environment, to move in the environment, to manipulate the environment? 
And RPA is really software-based automation. Um, and so there's not a physical uh, movement to that, uh, that uh, section of software. So yeah. we don't really consider that part of robotics. So, so what are some of the other distinctions in the field today? Um, what are the form factors you would say that are the most promising? You've said so the the, the warehouse automation robots right. and, and what what, exa- what are the exact functions that they carry out? So you said well some of them the arms are pickers, uh, they they do move move things around. So this is the uh, you know this is the Cambridge company that Amazon bought right the uh, Kiva. Kiva yeah. Um, what is the functionality of that particular robot? So, as it as it was when it came out of the gate with Kiva. Uh, so, the the Kiva approach is really kind of unique when it first came out. Um, and what they did was use robots to physically move shelves from a warehouse to where the the item was picked and packaged. And the benefit yeah. that brought was uh, instead of having people running in a massive warehouse to go get a book or a you know toothbrush or whatever you just ordered from Amazon. Uh, the robot would actually bring the shelf right to the picker. So they needed an item, they would turn, and the shelf that had that item would be right there next to them. So they didn't have to move anywhere. They could just grab the item. The robot would then take that shelf away and bring the next shelf. Um, There's been a number of startups and other companies now that have looked at that benefit of of kind of optimizing how goods move in the warehouse and have taken different approaches. Um, And there are robots now that uh, will go and, and kind of go to locations and, and show on a screen what the picker should pick, and they put it in the cart, and the robot runs away and goes to the next location, and when it's got a full order, it goes to a packout area. Um, all of this is yeah. just to address the, the fact that U.S. is buying more through e-commerce. The world is buying more through e-commerce. Um, and as we do that, um, you know, we used to go to a store. You and I would go to the store. We'd walk down the aisle, find what we want, put it in our cart or our basket, walk to the checkout, and... Uh, but if we order it online, somebody has to do that task, that particular go find an item. And, and there's not enough people to do that. We need robots to do that. And that uh, has just grown tremendously over the last couple of years. Well, so, so talk, to, talk to me about the precise moment we are now in terms of r- robotics. Because from what I've understood, you know, for years and years, there, there has been a lot of interest yeah. and a lot of demos and a lot of good thoughts going into robotics yeah. what are we at an inflection point and uh, and what, what what kind of market are we looking at now i mean are are the companies and you know we'll get to mass robotics and your current sort of structure here and, and, and the environment in in boston and beyond but but just give me a sense of of where the market is right now well what is this overall size of commercial robotics and and you know, you and I had a little bit of a discussion uh, kicking this off uh, before the call about the current moment, so the COVID moment right. and, and robotics. So give us a, just a sense of where we are right now. Yeah, I think, uh, so separate from COVID, we can talk a little bit about how that's impacted the industry. But I think the industry has a very interesting point. Um, the amount of investment in both startups and mid-sized companies over the last couple of years has grown dramatically. Um, in Massachusetts alone, we saw about $1.3 billion of investment in robotic startups in 2019. And already in the first half of 2020, we've seen uh, a similar uh, similar number. Um, there's a, a lot of investment going in. And the reason is that people are starting to see the advantage and realize, realizing some of the promises that were made in the past. Um, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and I've been in the industry for a long time that 
the promises that robots would do all sorts of things has been around for a long time. Um, it's it's yeah. kind of like uh, where they say the Brazilian economy, it has great potential and always will have. Um, it's kind of, it has been yeah. like that, but it's changed in the last couple yeah. of years. Um, part of that is because what I talked about before, this idea that we're focused on specific tasks and the fact yeah. that um, a lot of contributing technology has gone into reducing the costs of and making the robots much more uh, capable. So everything from sensors, right? Robots really perform when they have a good understanding of their environment. That's true of whether they're in a, inside a warehouse, whether they're on a road, whether they're at sea. Um, and the sensors to be able to provide that information have improved in performance and come down in cost dramatically. And so that allows you to now build a very intelligent, aware robot for a price that people can afford. So is it that the functionality of the sensors changed or is it the combo of the price drop? Because price drops are interesting, right? I mean, they, they don't occur in and of themselves. So there's this weird logic of, you know, if you have bigger demand, then obviously prices uh, drop. H how did this actually happen with, with sensors? Was that independent of robotics? Yeah. Was there a need, you know, is that the general IoT trends that just commoditized sensors? Yeah, so I'll give you an example. When uh, when we did a bomb disposal robot at iRobot, we used a, what at the time was called a block camera, uh, to get the resolution and the zoom capabilities we needed. Uh, and that was a couple hundred dollars, um, I can get that same capability now for under $2. Um, and it's not because robotics have pushed that. It's because you and I, through a purchase of our cell phones, have now yeah. driven so it's that. The, it, yeah, it's essentially the, the, the wireless uh, trends and, right. and uh, consumer electronics And uh, so revolution. robotics is just leveraging all of that. The, the, the increase in processing capability, the lower uh you just think of the, how much longer your laptops now last on a battery. Most of these mobile robots are battery driven. The fact that they can leverage the, the computational power and, and efficiencies that are coming out of some of these new systems just allows them to do much more. So you are engaged with mass robotics. G uh, give me a sense of what mass robotics is doing right now and uh what kinds of companies do you do you have in there? So yeah, first maybe explain what Mass Robotics actually is. Sure. Uh, so Mass Robotics is an independent nonprofit um, that was formed to support and help the robotics industry grow. And there are three main things that we do. One is support the over 350 robotics companies in Massachusetts. Uh, one is we run a shared workspace uh, to support startups specifically. Um, and we just expanded that uh, earlier this year, right before COVID. Um, we, uh, we now can have the capability of housing over 70 companies in our space. We currently house 53 startups. Um, and, and then we have another component that we're also very excited about is our STEM uh, uh, efforts. And we, um, we really... STEM as, as, in, in, uh, as in educational yeah. So So... Yeah. Kids love robots. It's one of the things that gets them, grabs them, fascinates them. Um, can we use that to, to get them involved in the engineering fields, get them excited about it, and then continue to have them excited about it? What, what kind of offering do you have there? I can offer, I can offer you three kids right now, <laughs> varying ages. Yeah, so, so we, what can you we do? have a whole host of programs we do. Uh, we run a summer drone camp. 
which we just completed, uh, where students actually get a box full of parts at the beginning of the week and build a drone by themselves and learn how to program it and fly it by the end of the week. Uh, so that's an exciting program uh, sponsored by Amazon, which is great, great partner of ours. Um, that is unfortunately targeted uh, for uh, not for the general public. We, we work primarily with Boston Public Schools on that, that particular one. Um, but we have other programs where we use uh, educational robots that have been developed in the community, and we offer courses around that on, on how they can either code or build or uh, everything from there's a soft robotics program out of Harvard. Uh, we do some, uh, there's a toolkit where you get little pieces of robots, you build it up, and it's kind of like a Lego version. Um, all sorts of different things uh, to teach different aspects of robotics to primarily high school and middle school students. How unique is mass robotics? I mean, it, it has a regional mandate, and you said right now there's 350 robotics companies in Massachusetts. How, how important is that on a global scale? I mean, I'm assuming you're among the bigger... We are. I mean, I don't want to presume yeah. anything, but you must be surely one of the biggest clusters. Um, you know, I think that there is always areas of the world that have a great density of robotics companies. Um, and you can pick Silicon Valley and some areas in Korea and others. But uh, we think that we have the highest density and most engaged community. Um, and uh, there's just it's a, just a tight-knit community that works really well together. We have so many companies that help other companies grow. Uh, that provide mentors, that provide different resources. Um, it's an exciting community to be a part of. So I know that it's difficult to single uh, single out companies, you know, in terms of like best or best or worst. And I'm not going to ask you to do that. But what are some particularly interesting examples of either use cases or new companies that have come into your your space, or anything that kind of stands out in terms of? Uh, maybe per, perhaps uh, developing more the Im imagination around what, what robot, robots can do. Yeah, so um, I won't go into my favorites. That's always hard. It's kind of like asking if I ask you, what is your favorite child? Um, right? Yeah, no, that, I, I know that. So I'm not, that's not what I'm asking you. I'm explicitly not asking yeah. for favorites. I'm um, asking for sort of uh, diversity. But I think, yeah, so we have a really, the, the range of companies we have is, is incredibly diverse. Um, we have a company called, for instance, Florabots, which is uh, doing a, an interesting uh, application around using robots to pick and create flower arrangements. Uh, so that think of in the future, you go into South Station, you could hit a button in a kiosk and it would create a flower arrangement for you that you could grab on your way home. Based on my, what, personality and the uh, <laughs> personality of my significant other or something, yeah? With an yeah, algorithm exactly. attack. You could think of some, some artificial intelligence way to do that. But but a way to make flower uh, arrangements more affordable and more fresh and rapid uh, deployment. So we have a company like that. We have a company that's doing uh, a, a small uh, drone um, that's uh, kind of encapsulated almost. So it's very safe. Uh, so obviously you can think of uh, applications around uh, going into buildings and so forth in fires or, or, or a hostage situation where you could send a drone for surveillance but also think of maybe an application in your home where you could use the drone to fly around and check how your, your vacation home is or something. Um, there's a, it, but it has commercial capabilities, not just, yeah, you know, one of has, the leisurely drones that sort of has a two minute battery life. And, and right. And it's meant like for really uh, high performance uh, surveillance and situational awareness, uh, but can be used for many different applications. And it's really safe. It's, uh, it's something that the blades are all, all shrouded so that you can't, 
you know, if you've seen some of the drones flying around that the hobbyists uh, have with those blades, that can be a little bit dangerous. I'm not sure you want that flying I around have your house. To, I was so glad you mentioned that because some of these drones, they scare me because you have teenagers, uh, you know, running these drones that could cut people's head off. This is yeah. not good. And then, uh, you know, I, I, I talked earlier about warehouse automation uh, and, you know, we're, we're rich with companies in the area, but we also have a startup here, Urbex, that's doing a different twist on that about, how do I automate, uh, make, make, maybe make micro stores and, and provide high speed product delivery in a small footprint? Um, so they're still a little bit in, in stealth mode, but they're, they're doing some really neat things in, in that type of delivery automation. So as you can see, we have companies uh, across the spectrum and that, that I think makes our, our space kind of exciting. Got it. Let's talk about disruptive forces for a minute. So, you know, we talked about how there are challenges in the field of, of robotics. There's obviously also opportunities. I like to chart that out usually in just uh, kind of four different types of, of, of factors that play. And, you know, technology, obviously, you know, it creates this opportunity. But the regulatory environment is, is important. And then you have to have a good business model. And then lastly, obviously, the reception, the social dynamics, the consumer response. Which of these forces would you say is more actively <clears throat> representing itself now in the robotics field? Which one is going to be particularly important to watch either locally here in Massachusetts or in the U.S. or sort of globally? Uh, you know, what is happening to, to the disruptors or market forces around robotics right now? Yeah, so there's two things I'd probably touch upon. One is, is regulation. Uh, I think in many respects, especially in self-driving vehicles, um, that technology, again, it has been promised for years, um, but it is getting closer to reality. I think what's going to really impact the adoption and deployment of this type of technology is the rules and regulations that allow it to uh, to, to operate on public streets and, and so forth. Um, and Are you talking about commercial operation, commercial operation. Uh, mattering now yeah. or, or, or even just for the experimentation? Uh, we're actually, uh, Boston's been very supportive uh, of the experimentation. We have a number of companies that have self-driving vehicles right here um, in the seaport area of Boston that are running on the roads every day. So I think that has been fairly supportive. I think it's just long term. How are we going to regulate this type of technology? How will it de de deploy? An area that we haven't talked too much about, but that is fascinating, is uh, the development of these delivery robots. So the, the kind of the last mile delivery, how do I get from the UPS or FedEx truck to your apartment, to, to your house? Uh, do I do yeah. that by drone? Do I do that by uh, a, a ground robot that, that can drive off the back of the truck? Um, that technology is going to be and is being developed at an incredible pace, but, but also how... Are we going to allow for that? How is society going to accept and and and, and uh, you know are robots like that going to be allowed on the sidewalks? Uh, think back to when Segway came out. So you probably remember Segway and and that ride. They had all sorts of challenges early on. Is you know is it on the road? Is it on the sidewalk? Where can it operate? Uh, we're going to have that, and uh, it's important that the the industry gets together with the regulatory agencies and works on a a way that this technology can be deployed that is efficient and effective for everybody in, in, in the community. You know, there's always a lot of talk about startups in, in any technology area, but uh, large corporations, specifically in this field, play a large role. And it's yeah. not just Amazon, right? It's, it's how it gets deployed commercially. 
uh, you know, in industrial automation, but also widely in, in, in a set of fields that, that you didn't really necessarily think of. How is that going, the kind of the wider adoption of maybe some of these simpler robotic use cases that don't require, uh, you know, 60 uh, robotic engineers to run them, but they can just be readily today implemented and, and, and can really make a difference on the factory floor or in, like you said, in delivery of, of packaged goods. What are some of these emerging uh, companies that, that have made the, the leap into more than just exploration? that you have worked so i it, it's almost in every field um i think you're starting to see some of the larger organizations uh really understand that they are going to have to uh continue to automate to stay competitive um and they are looking to adopt the robotics uh in different ways and, and so there's a company in boston uh called sea machines that just recently raised another 15 million um in, in venture capital to expand, they, they make a uh, kind of a um, autonomous uh, self-piloting vessel uh, system. So they can take uh, tugboats and, and other types of things and make them autonomous. Um, and they've teamed with uh, some of the larger companies like Maersk, which is one of the largest uh, freight uh, shipping companies. Um, they're all looking at that technology, right? They're understanding that yeah. the world is going to change we need to make sure that we have technology that helps us be efficient uh, and robots can help in so many ways. As you're looking into the next decade, what is likely to happen in this space? So, you know, in the, in looking into the crystal ball here, uh, will this rapid growth that you're seeing at this moment, is that something you foresee will, will last? Or, you know, once, once companies get this in, uh, you know, in-house, they will take quite a bit of time to kind of mature with, with even with the technology they they in-house uh, initially and then there will be a bit of a pause as as kind of we are adjusting to to the sort of new robotic influx or 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 is it now becoming so simple to implement these things that it's going to take on a whole other adoption speed so uh, the simplicity of integration is going to be key uh, to the, the kind of the, uh, the rapid adoption that we, we expect that we think we're going to see. Um, so we yeah. talked a little bit about larger corporations. Uh, the reality is that most of the manufacturing in the U.S. is done by small and mid-sized manufacturers. Um, and right now, robot systems are still, when I look at automation, whether it is uh, you know, industrial arms, whether it's conveyor belts, all of that type of stuff, still requires third-party integrators to help set them up, install them. And once they're set to do one particular task, it's very hard to change them. And there's a huge effort right now to make these uh, operations much simpler. And once that happens, we, we have a startup called Southie that's doing exactly that, that is looking to make essentially no-code uh, programming of these industrial arms. Um, once that type of technology gets more widely deployed, um, and anybody can install an arm or any of these mobile systems in their factory. They don't need a, a robotics engineer in their factory to maintain them. Uh, that's when I think you're going to start to see this really widespread deployment. So, yes, large companies are starting to, to make huge investments and deploy it. But I think that that upkeep, that growth is going to continue as we see these deployments in smaller companies. 
Talk to me specifically about interoperability, because one thing is the simplicity of the process in and of itself. But but if the systems are incompatible, then, I mean, you have to put all the more third-party integrators on, and you have yeah. to put a different integrator on for each robotic arm. And then if you switch robotic arms, you're in big trouble. How, how is that work going? Because I know that was part of the effort and the spirit yeah. uh, and, and ethos basically of mass robotics to have some sort of function beyond just best practice and you know let's share and let's have fun uh, you know exchanging uh, you know what each other is doing to actually align on some some standards yeah how, how is that it's, going? Uh, it's going well we're, we've actually got uh, it's called an AMR interoperability working group where we're, we're uh, having some of the autonomous mobile robot companies uh, get together and talk about an interoperability standard and uh, and the way to think about it is if, if I have a warehouse and I've got now this uh, shelf moving robot and I've got a floor cleaning robot and I've got an autonomous forklift, how do they all operate on the same floor, right? If humans are operating each one of those, they'll all know, they can look at each other, they can kind of figure out who's going to go where. How do the robots do that? And so we're going to, we're working to build a, an interoperability standard to allow these to coexist on the same factory floor or warehouse floor. Um, and I think that's a big step. It's going to take a lot of work, uh, but uh, we're excited to be involved in that. Let's speak more about these cobots, because one of the biggest things in kind of robotic folklore, which then made itself into regulation for understandable reasons, is that robots are dangerous. Mm -hmm. And and so, some robots are, right? Because yeah. they have metallic arms and you know, in the industrial space, if they are moving huge parts, uh, they obviously have a force commensurate with that. So, you know, regulation in many countries prescribe that robots are going to be fenced in. What's happening to that space? And, and how do cobots now, and, and with what technologies and approaches, do they then become slightly smarter, which I've understood they do. Yeah. And in, in some fields, they can actually have millimeter precision and, and, and have convinced regulators to some extent that they are fairly harmless, at least compared to these old big kind of <laughs> massive motions that were just would just swing like a uncontrollably if you know if you were in the wrong yes. place yeah there's a, there's a lot to, that goes into uh, the safety uh, of of these industrial arms um, one is certainly size you know if I'm moving a car picking up a full-size frame moving it around I still you know should be uh, you know caged um, but there is new technology there's a startup in, in uh, outside of Boston called VIO that's looking at technology that allows these industrial arms um, to operate next to humans by using, as we talked about earlier, sensors and motion control to be able to more accurately project where the arm is going, slow it down appropriately so that it won't hit anybody or hurt anybody. But there's also this new trend of these simpler, smaller robots that are called cobots or collaborative robots that are designed to be inherently safe. So that the the, uh, the arm is either very lightweight or has some flexibility, elasticity in it, so that it will not hurt somebody if it comes close to or in contact with somebody. Um, and that's an interesting trend because there are so many things that uh, need to be automated that are not heavy, that are small. Uh, think of how many little parts go into your cell phone, right? Can we automate some of those processes with some of these smaller robots? Um, but safety is an interesting thing, right? I can make the arm as safe as, as I want, but if I put a knife at the very end of that arm, it's not safe anymore. It starts swinging around. So, you know, there's a, there you have to build safety cases. You have to understand how these robots are going to be performing. You need to put in the safety protocols and uh, whether it's light barriers and other things 
to, to make this situation safe. But that is certainly happening. Tom, any worries on the horizon? Anything keeping you up at night? Because, uh, you know, I can hear that you have a true passion for robotics, but uh, everything isn't always <laughs> hunky-dory. There are, are certainly challenges. I mean, is the funding environment, you know, still looking really good? I mean, all are, are all... Uh, you know, arrows pointing up here, or are um, there some challenges as well? You know, I think uh, there's been certainly the the pandemic has caused some uh, some concerns amongst a number of the startups, both from the ability to operate. So we were we closed our facility for about three months um, totally, um, and it's different. It, you know, we talk, but you've opened back. We've up. opened back up now, um, but uh, this whole yeah. work from home. That's okay if you're working on hardware where you have one prototype and a three or four engineers working on it. It's really hard to distance and, and how do you do that? So we've worked at, with a number of the companies to find creative ways to work in shifts and other things, but they still need to get on the hardware. So, you know, I, yeah. we're obviously monitoring the situation with the pandemic carefully. What happens if we have to shut down again? Uh, that really just delays some of the development of these startups. And also fundraising is is more challenging. We've had a couple of companies that have been successful in raising without essentially ever meeting their their VCs in, in person. Um, they've all done it virtually. Wow. But that's hard, especially when you're doing hardware and they want to actually see what you're building uh, and get hands on. Yeah, I, c- I could imagine that. It's a hard check to write. When right. <laughs> I want to believe that this thing works, but... But can I see it? So yeah. we're, we're, we're very, you know... we're. The next couple of months is going to be very interesting. Uh, I think some startups pushed off fundraising until the fall when they thought things would would open up a little bit more. I'm not sure that's going to be the case. Um, that being yeah. said, you know, COVID has opened up a huge number of opportunities for robotics companies because the ability sure. to distance using a robot. Uh, you know, we talked about cobots, but one of the interesting applications is. Uh, that we've seen a couple of companies do is on an assembly line where people were elbow to elbow, they would put a robot in between. And it's just simply picking up a part from one person and passing it to another person, but doing that with six or eight feet distance. Um, The robot's really not adding a lot of value in that particular case, other than it's allowing the workers to be more uh, more safe. Um, And so that's the application. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. And, and then also a robot to provide distance. Who would have thought that? Exactly. Um, but also, yeah. robots are doing things like uh, putting these disinfectant systems on, or UV lights, and and being able to move through offices and disinfect spaces, and just simple telepresence and the ability to actually be remotely in facilities and move around. Uh, all of these are great applications for robots. How do you track the robotic field? I'm, I'm obviously understanding that since you're such a big engine in this ecosystem with 350 companies, you are in touch with them on a day-to-day basis. So your situation is a little different than a VC trying to track the system or, 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 or even some, uh, some startup trying to get into the robotic ecosystem. But how does one track robotics, commercial robotics these days? What are... What are the newsletters to get signed on to? Who are the authorities to listen to? Uh, where is the most interesting work going on? Um, obviously, beyond, the, I'll link up your work uh, at Mass Thanks. Robotics, of course. Um, yeah, I think that that's another area that has expanded. There's a number of different organizations that are starting to put on events, technical and educational events, and uh, things that were not available in the past. 
Um, we, we work a lot with uh, WTWH Media that runs the Robot Report and Robot Business. Um, there's another organization called AUVSI, uh, which is the Association of Unmanned Vehicles. Um, they have some great information as well as RIA, which is a robotics industrial association. So there's a number of organizations now that are, are tracking and putting on events that allow people to get educated about what's happening. Um, and it's interesting. There's a, a couple of large trade shows that once upon a time were focused on like uh, the, the warehouse handling, uh, goods handling side, uh, Modex and others, big trade shows. And in the past, they used to be mostly traditional forklifts and traditional, uh, you know, good moving conveyor belts. And now um, almost a third of their floor is dedicated to robots of different kinds. So uh, when you look at things like that, you see the trends and you understand that the robots are really going to make an impact in a lot of these industries. Last little question from my side. The field of manufacturing is kind of curiously viewed as quite a, a boring and slightly unsexy field mm -hmm. compared and slow moving compared to the field of robotics, yet they address the same issue and largely are the same. One, how do you account for that? And, and do you two see that that's changing as kind of industrial operations is really doing this uh, upgrade where automation really now is such a part of, of every industry and, and certainly of former kind of slow-moving industrial uh, fields, as they're adding robots and, and other type of automation, surely um, they must become more attractive. But, but how, you know, is there a time lag there before there will be the realization that, you know, it's not like the cool jobs are in uh, software technology. It's just, you, you know, the, the, the whole idea is that software and hardware working together is now in every industry. Yeah, I think me. So, so how, how are you seeing that? I mean, in, on the recruitment side for talent, for instance, among uh, people working in the robotic sector. I think, um, so you bring up a, a couple of interesting points. I think from a talent perspective, um, it's robotics gives uh, users, the engineers, the ability to make things move, to physically interact with things. And, and it's so different than if you write code and, oh yeah, now I've that, that cell on that spreadsheet does this. Okay, great. But if you can write code and say, wow, now that is moving across the floor, it's, it's, it's flying, it's doing that, that. So being attracting engineers for, to the robotics field has never been a problem. Um, I think you had mentioned manufacturers and their adoption. Um, the automation in the past has been expensive and it has been fairly unflexible. Um, in, yeah. And so inflexible so that, that they have to make a huge investment. The ROI is long. And so they tend to do it on dedicated fixed lines. Um, and we as a society are changing. We want things customized. So, you know, people don't want to buy the same iPhone that everybody else has. They want a different color, cover, screen, whatever, which means that uh, companies have to adopt and they have to make packaging and manufacturing more flexible so that they can address these needs. And I think uh, robots can really add that and provide that capability. And so we're seeing them start to deploy them. And the cost, as I mentioned before, is coming down, so the ROI is shorter. Mm -hmm. um, it's, still, it's still tough to get the talent into the traditional manufacturing fields uh, to be able to deploy these, but hopefully the systems will get simpler and easier to deploy. Um, the US is- What about- the, I was gonna say yeah. the US is also invested. Uh, they've 
got uh, a number of these manufacturing institutes, and there's one called the ARM, the Advanced Robotic Manufacturing Institute. That is pretty much looking to address this issue. It's how do we continue to remain competitive on a global stage by allowing robots to help and assist and keep, uh, keep manufacturing here in the U.S.? Well, well, that's a, a, a good good point, though. Keep keep uh, an assist because how about this last question? Uh, tiny little question: Will <laughs> the robots take all of our jobs? Um, I, there are some people who are very seriously considering this question. Yeah. So, uh, if you understand the state of robots, you'll know that they're nowhere close to being able to take over your jobs. I do think there are fields that robots can help. It, they're going to change the nature of the work. They're not necessarily going to take over the jobs. They're going to change what humans do versus what robots do. And, you know, the robots that have been most successful have been the robots that have been targeted at, at, at we call the three Ds, the dull, dirty, and dangerous tasks. Um, and I think those are areas that robots will continue to, to do well in. Uh, this idea, though, that maybe we should tax robots or somehow inhibit their adoption so that we can keep workers working, uh, I think is a fallacy uh, because so many other parts of the world are adopting robots at a pace faster than we can. Um, and so the idea that, well, we just won't uh, accept robots, we won't put robots in factories, and that way we'll keep all the workers in the factories. No, that work is going to go to another factory in another part of the world that is more competitive because they are using robots. So we need to understand how robots will be deployed and make sure that we have the uh, the training and, and the, the uh, classes that we can keep people skilled to use this technology and continue to be uh, productive. What about this even loftier fear about robots taking over? How do you <laughs> see that from your perspective? Um, I, I mean, this merging of AI with these fantastic hardwares that yeah, so are, the you ethics know, of when, AI, when they reach human form factor, they'll simply take, take over. over. Um, I think the ethical, uh, the ethics of AI is, is certainly a, another topic that's probably too long to get into here. Um, I think from a physical standpoint, we, we're not going to see a Rosie the robot or a, a humanoid in the home for quite some time. Yeah. So, so the timelines in any case, if that were to be an, an issue for you, is is far beyond this decade, at least. Yes. I mean, this decade, as I've understood this conversation for you, is more about commercial adoption of robotics in very finite industrial use cases. Well, and I think also in consumer cases, but I think it's going to be a situation where it will evolve over time. Uh, you're not going to walk in one day and go, oh, wow, there's a robot that does everything in my home. What's going to happen is different aspects will get automated. The car is a great example. You know, you can think of ABS as kind of a, a robotic application and automatic braking. But you look at all yeah. of the, you know, dynamic cruise control, lane control, collision avoidance, auto braking, all of these features that you can buy. And like if you go to a Toyota RAV4, you're going to find that in, in it and you're going to get used to that technology. And over time, it's going to step forward and, you know, you'll one day get in the car and hit a say and drive to work and it will drive you to work. And, but it's not going to be tomorrow that car will arrive. We'll just incrementally evolve to being a car that can do all those features. Got it. On that note, Tom, thanks so much for uh, having this conversation about uh, the reality and the future and the growth of, of robotics and commercial robotics. Thank you so much. Tom, thank you for having me. 
You have just listened to episode 31 of the Futurized podcast with host Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of commoditized robotics. Our guest was Tom Ryden, executive director of Mass Robotics, the biggest co-working space and robotics community in the US. In this conversation, we talked about what's happened over the past decade. Where is the robotics field now, from R&D to standardization to big company implementation to startups into consumer applications and business applications? Changing form factors and the pivotal role of AI and IoT towards a Cambrian explosion in robotics. What are the hottest startups and where are we going in the next decade? My takeaway is that the future of commoditized robotics just took a major leap forward with COVID-19. As pilots became huge deployments, and the automation of manufacturing suddenly became a survival strategy, not a future-proofing strategy. Next, we might see an uptick in collaborative robotics, so-called cobots. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.co or in your preferred podcast player, and rate us with five stars. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.